Chapter eighteen of Thou Art the Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thou Art the Man by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter eighteen Lady Penrith's Idea. The story of Sybil Higginson's girlhood has been told. She now reappears on the scene in the maturity of her beauty, in the calm strength of a cultivated intellect, with all the power and influence that rank and wealth can give in a world where both are objects of fanatical worship, a woman much admired and courted, and sincerely loved by the numerous nephews and nieces to whom she is never weary of showing kindness. Yet, for all that, a lonely woman, childless, fatherless, living her own life, unsustained by the sympathy or affection of her husband. Sir Joseph's anticipation of the end proved a true forecast. He died suddenly at his house in London in the first year of his daughter's marriage, and after seeing her take her place in the great world with distinction and the vast wealth which he had accumulated in half a century of laborious enterprise, passed at once to Sybil, Countess of Penrith, guarded and hedged round by those wise restrictions which Sir Joseph's lawyers had attached to her marriage settlement. Sybil's fortune might make Lord Penrith a rich man, but Lord Penrith had no power to make his wife a pauper. Sometimes in an angry mood he spoke of himself contemptuously as her ladyship's pensioner. The house at Arlington Street was sold soon after Sir Joseph's death, and according to the terms of the will, but all that was choicest in a remarkable collection of pictures and curios was transferred to Lady Penrith's rooms in Berkeley Square, or to the castle in the marches. She was pleased to surround herself with the things her father's taste had selected, nor was she unwise in the desire to keep the pictures which he had chosen, for the self-educated, humbly-born millionaire had early learnt to discriminate between good and bad art, and his taste and judgment had ripened in the studios of famous painters and in Christie's sale-rooms. Even the sweepings of his gallery sold well. No ray of light had been cast on Brandon Mountfort's fate in the ten years that had gone by since his escape from the lock-up at Ardliston, and Sybil could hardly doubt that he had gone down to his death with the crew of the Mary Jane. Susan Kettering's children were growing up to sturdy lads and lasses, and it had been Lady Penrith's care that they should be well provided for. The boys apprenticed, the girls started in domestic service with all the belongings of respectability. Susan Kettering had long ago repented of her unjust anger against Sir Joseph's daughter, and had learnt to be grateful to the benefactress who had made the years of her widowhood smooth and prosperous. There was no one in that north country more beloved and respected than Lady Penrith. She was a personage in Mayfair and Belgravia, 
but in that smaller world around Killander Castle and Ellerslie Park she was a queen. Ellerslie House had never been occupied by strangers, though in the nine years since Sir Joseph's death Lady Penrith had only lived in it for a few days at a time, once or twice a year. His lordship spoke scornfully of the folly of maintaining a house and grounds which required the labour of about a dozen people for such brief occupancy. But Sybil reminded her husband that as the shooting and fishing were of use to himself and his friends, he had no right to complain. There was at least one inhabitant of Ellerslie House above the status of a servant, and that was Andrew Orlebar, who had occupied his old rooms and moved about house and gardens and home farm in his own quiet way ever since Sir Joseph's death. He was Lady Penrith's land steward and business manager. He held all the threads of that golden web of which she was the centre. He knew the value of every investment Sir Joseph had ever made, and he had watched them all from the beginning. And he might have been questioned at any moment as to yesterday's closing price of any stock held by Lady Penrith without being out in his reply by so much as an eighth. Andrew Orlebar lived at Ellerslie all the year round, and never complained of wintry weather or want of society. He was much respected in the district, and looked up to as a man whose advice on money matters was worth a little extra courtesy. He was nearly seventy, but no less active and industrious than when he entered Sir Joseph Higginson's service as a timekeeper and clerk at thirty. Nothing at Ellerslie had been altered. The rooms in which Sybil's childhood and youth had been spent were exactly the same as she had ever known them, and it pleased her sometimes to turn her back upon a large house-party at the castle to spend a quiet day in those silent rooms, with no companion but Andrew Orlebar, with whom she would take tea in Sir Joseph's study, and who delighted to make her look through his account at the half-year's payment to her banker. "'You have a surplus from last year's income that ought to be invested,' he would say. "'Your balance is needlessly large.' "'Do what you like with it, my dear Andrew,' was her usual reply. "'Your investments never go wrong. "'But first let us remember the poor.' "'And then she would tell him of some charity in which she was interested, "'some great work vouched for by good men, "'and she would allot to that scheme of beneficence, "'perhaps the whole of her surplus. "'If Andrew Lorelebar argued that she was giving away too much,' that she was not allowing her fortune its natural development, she would answer with a sad smile that she had no motive for being richer, and that she had enough, and more than enough, having no children among whom to divide her fortune, no family to establish, spreading out to other families, carrying her riches into new channels. For a solitary woman to go on amassing wealth for the mere pleasure of piling up money would be horrible, she said. Orlebar shook his head dubiously. Great fortunes must grow, he said. It doesn't do for them to stand still. The value of the sovereign steadily dwindles, and a rich man who doesn't increase his capital will find himself a poor man some day, without knowing why, 
you must really allow me to invest half your surplus in one of our home railways the stock is very high but it will go higher the discussion generally ended in a compromise half the surplus income went to the charity and half was in invested in orlebar's discretion he was very careful in his administration of his principal's fortune the days of neck-or-nothing enterprise which had helped make joseph higginson a millionaire were over i go on plodding among investments that cannot bring more than four and a half per cent at the outside he said but the responsibility is too great for me to risk anything i can't play pitch and toss with tens of thousands as your dear father did ah oh, those were fine times in arlington street when you were a little girl he used to take my breath away but whatever stock he touched always turned up trumps he had the genius of finance and it was all for your sake i am building up a pile for my little girl he used to say and he did build up a pile those egyptian pharaohs were thought to have done a grand thing when they left a pyramid behind them what's the good of a pyramid it's neither useful nor ornamental the fortune your father left is both look at the higginson orphanage the higginson almshouse for pittman's windows the higginson schools aren't those useful and ornamental too your work all your work i know my dear lady but you couldn't have built them without his money no indeed they are his work and his only it has been my greatest happiness to found institutions that will make his name remembered in the years to come when there will be no one living who can remember him ah that's a sad thought ain't it fifty years or so and there's no one left whose memory can conjure up the figure of the man as he lived there's a portrait or two more or less like him Herkimer's is about as like as paint can be to the flesh and blood, but the memory of him as he lived and moved, the quick turn of his head, all life and energy, the curious little twitch of his eyebrow when he was puzzled, that slow, thoughtful smile when he was going to do a kindness to anyone, his deep, full voice, a little rough sometimes, but very gentle in those he loved. Fifty years and no one on this earth will be able to recall those things that are so near and vivid now it does seem hard don't it sibyl loved to hear the old man talk were he never so prosy and those afternoons at ellerslie were always a restful change from the statelier life of Calander castle Coralie, having expressed herself very anxious to see a house of which she had heard a great deal, Lady Penrith took her over to Ellerslie one October afternoon, within a few days of that long afternoon wasted on futile inquiries in the vain endeavour to solve the mystery of the pencil scrawl. Coral, Cora ran about the house, looking at everything, and rapturous about everything, with that equality of praise which bespeaks the ignorant admirer and while the younger lady was amusing herself by a tour of inspection the elder was closeted with andrew orlebar from whom she had no secrets 
and to whom she showed the scrap of paper which had stirred such hidden depths of feeling it is so like his hand she said and then she placed the poor scrawl side by side with a little note written in the early morning before one of their river excursions proposing a picnic luncheon at a particular spot suggesting that sibyl and her companion should take their books and sketching materials or their latest craze in the way of needlework and make a day of it a note sportive and playful which committed the writer to no expression of feeling yet which seemed to breathe fondest admiration of her to whom it was written it was his first letter how she had treasured it in that golden time and in all the years since that brief dream of love other letters had followed letters about further excursions about books about music playful little notes written in the morning about disputed points in the conversation overnight a misquoted line by tennyson or browning notes about anything about nothing there is no surer sign of a man being deep in love than this inclination to scribble futilities to a lady while living under the same roof with her the necessary separations of daily life are too long for him he must needs bridge them over with nonsense letters he cannot stand under her window and serenade her like a lover of old romance so he writes and writes and writes there is certainly a resemblance between the two hands said orlebar after scrutinizing both documents through a reading-glass and magnifying every stroke but what of that you may often find a resemblance as marked in the penmanship of men who are total strangers to each other and cannot have grown to write alike by unconscious imitation and how can you for a moment suppose that this scrap of paper given to you by some crazy mendicant on the moor could emanate from brandon mountfort who disappeared ten years ago and whom we have every reason to believe dead every reason but no positive proof answered sibyl thoughtfully the man who gave me that paper may have been crazy but he was certainly not a beggar he thrust the paper into my hand and ran away he wanted nothing from me his conduct was like that of a messenger an ignorant man who've been told to watch for my carriage and to give me the paper and you think he was sent by mountford asked orlebar with a pitying smile the delusions of romantic love know no limits he knew partly from his observation of her partly by her own confession how fondly this woman had loved brandon mountford and he contemplated her hallucination of to-day with tenderest compassion poor child poor woman whose life had for the last ten years been loveless what wild possibilities an empty heart can conjure out of the thinnest cloud of suggestion i don't know what to think my dear lady pray don't delude yourself by hopes 
that are as unreal as those mountain ranges and giant's caverns which you used to show me in the evening sky years ago on the terrace when we walked up and down together after dinner i don't think any rational person can doubt that poor mountford went down in the mary jane and that under the influence of his terrible disease he committed the crime which brought such misery on this house that i will never believe said lady penrith indignantly no no you won't believe it because you can't understand you don't know what it is when a devil of madness blind desperate raging against he knows not what enters into a man and cries kill kill you can't understand that nor can i or any sane person but we know that such things are and if it was so don't you think providence dealt kindly with all of us in sending that poor fellow to a death that had no shame in it a moment's wild uncertainty and then whirled out of this life in one deafening blast one uplifting of the furious sea upon my word lady penrith since every one of us must die somehow i doubt if one could die an easier death than in a tempest he was innocent innocent said sibyl her eyes bring, brimming with angry tears i know quite as much about it as you do i have studied the books that describe his melody a man does not reach that violent stage of the disease all at once brandon had suffered from the milder form of attack he may have had a worse seizure that day perhaps he had been agitated and unhappy he had been anxious and worried for some time previously the period of unconsciousness was much longer no doubt it was a bad attack but the impulse to kill never touched him i would stake my life upon that you must look somewhere else for the murderer of marie arnold somewhere as near perhaps what do you mean i can't tell you there are some suspicions too dreadful to be uttered i dare not tell you mine but i can and i do declare that brandon mountford was no murderer there was a silence orlebar was perplexed and troubled by those dark hints of hers he was quick to catch at an idea and the only idea that sibyl's words suggested was terrible he would not give it room in his mind but if this unhappy man were alive why should he allowed all these years to pass without making any sign without writing to you to whom he owes so much he may have been unable for some cause or another it is difficult to imagine a cause and if he were living and a free agent such silence would imply base ingratitude no no what i did was nothing or it may have been the worst that could have been done 
the worst for his good name certainly for it confirms the people about here in the idea of his guilt i may have fallen into a trap set for him and me he had no cause for gratitude and there may be reasons his regard for my reputation among other reasons why he should hold no communication with me granted but in that case why after a silence of many years approach you in such a lunatic fashion as this asked orlebar pointing to the scrap of paper with those few incoherent words scrawled in pencil must i tell you what i thought of in the long sleepless night since the message was given me it is hateful to speak of it but i can imagine no other solution i believe he is somewhere in this neighborhood mad and a prisoner my dear lady that is the wildest flight of imagination upon your part perhaps but that is the only explanation i can find for this she laid her finger on the pencil lines before andrew orlebar and then took up the little scrap of paper and put it away in her purse as carefully as if it had been the most precious thing she possessed i have begun to look for him she said quietly and i shall go on looking for him end of chapter 18